this week on the Back Table Podcast. There's definitely been challenges. If you love what you do and everything's a joy, I think. So I'm thrilled about I would never change, you know, what I've chosen for anything. People keep talking about how medicine has changed, but I know I'd do it all over again. <laughs> Hello, welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we provide a platform to dive into and discuss all sorts of topics related to otolaryngology and beyond. We are your hosts. My name is Ashley Agan, and I'm joined, as always, by the incredible Gopi Shaw. Gopi, <laughs> how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm feeling super excited because I'm so excited about our guest today. Um, we have Dr. Sherry Ann Nathan. Um, she's here today to talk about her insight and lessons in leadership as a surgeon scientist and a chairwoman in otolaryngology. I first met Sherry Ann in 1995 when I was 15 years old in Shreveport, Louisiana, at an Indian community gathering. And this dynamic woman had just moved into town with her husband, Raghu, a pulmonologist, and her two boys, Sean and Neil and she was a new head and neck surgeon in town from UCSD. Um, she quickly developed a very busy head and neck practice at the Feast Weiler Cancer Center, where she's the director of head and neck surgery and research, and was the chief of staff for the University Hospital. Academically, Sherian is funded by the National Cancer Institute since 2000, and her focus has been on targeted therapies for head and neck patients. She's pioneered multi-institutional clinical trials using mTOR inhibitors and head and neck squamous cell patients and has received NIH funding for chemo prevention of cancer with curcumin, which led to a patent. She became the chairman of the Department of Otolaryngology at LSU Shreveport and chairs the Promotion and Tenure Committee at the medical school. On a national level, she's been the program chair for multiple meetings, including TRIO Annual Meeting, TRIO CASM, and for the American Head and Neck Society, for which she was also the president. She serves on multiple national committees, including the NCI Steering Committee and the American Cancer Society, CDC, HPV Steering Committee. And in her community, Sherian continues to sponsor multiple fundraisers for cancer awareness for the Cancer Center. She was also on the board of directors for the Cyport Science Museum in Shreveport and two of our magnet schools in Shreveport. So welcome to the show, Sherian. What an honor it is to have you. Thank you, Gopi. Thank you, Ashley, for inviting me. And I'm equally excited to be here. Gopi, you're one of the reasons I love what I'm doing. I love seeing uh, you know, students who I came across when they were young now be these wonderful surgeons, top doctors in Dallas and oh. you know, all the wonderful things you're faculty have to say about you. Oh, thank you very much. Um, so I rotated um, when I was a third year going into fourth year medical student at LSU for ENT and was very inspired. And that's why I'm here today doing ENT. I feel like, you know, we said I, I would love to first just start out with you telling us more about yourself, Sherry, and some of the your early life, where you grew up, your time in medical school, and what experiences or opportunities that stand out to you from your early, you know, growing up. Yeah, so Gopi, I, you can tell from my accent, I'm not from here. I grew up in Mumbai, India, and, um, you know, was uh, really one of these gregarious uh, students with many extracurricular activities. I was involved with music, sports, ballet, Indian dancing. And so I think my dad was really pretty shocked when I kept saying I wanted to be a cancer surgeon when I was young because he thought 
with all my other activities, you know, I shouldn't be a physician. But really, as a third grader, when you had to write essays and what do you want to be when you grow up, I would always say I wanted to be a cancer surgeon. And um, my ideal idol was um, Dr. Ernest Borges, who was this renowned cancer surgeon at Tata Memorial Hospital, which is one of the biggest cancer hospitals in Mumbai. Yeah. And he was director of the cancer center there. He was also a family friend and very interestingly, you know, died of cancer himself at a young age. But he used to treat the people at Tada Memorial for free and uh, say to the rich that, you know, pay me whatever you want because I'm going to use the money I get to treat the poor. And so actually when he died, he left his family, you know, without really much of support. And my grandfather, who was also a physician and was president of the Lions Club, helped raise uh, money to support the family. And so I, you know, grew up hearing all these stories about this great man. And even though I never really knew him, well, just always felt like I wanted to be a cancer surgeon like him. So, you know, then landed up actually having a choice between I was also a pianist and I had won the first place in India, Sri Lanka and Pakistan with the Trinity College of London. And so I had a choice of either going on a scholarship to Europe for music or med school and finally decided it was going to be med school. Wow. Yep. And then, so how did you end up in San Diego? Because I know you did your residency and your fellowship in San Diego. Yeah. So, you know, I was going to actually be a, do general surgery and then be a surgical oncologist. And I bring this up because I think as women, we always kind of get swayed a little bit when it comes to how do you balance family and career. And so my mom, on the last day of my application, said, hey, you know, you're a woman, you got to think about family. I mean, this cancer surgeon is going to be tough for that. And uh, my brother-in-law was an ENT in India, very well known now. Back then, he had just started his career and so had him talk to me. And, you know, they said ENT is so much better for a woman. And 40% of our malignancies in India are head and neck cancer. So I could still achieve that goal. So I landed up actually applying uh, for ENT to be a head and neck surgeon. And when I got into Naya Hospital, the department that I got matched in was very, you know, busy with head and neck cancer. And so I was super excited. But the chairman then decided to leave and go into private practice. And the new chair of ENT was more of an otologist. And so we didn't land up doing after about three or four months of my start in my residency, we didn't land up do as much head and neck. So I kind of got frustrated. And also in those first four months of head and neck, you know, our recurrence rates were so high. So I thought, hey, we're not practicing state-of-the-art medicine and started to think about moving to the U.S. So I applied for a scholarship and I came to Johns Hopkins on a scholarship. Uh, to do research and also see how head neck cancer was being treated there. And that's what actually brought me to the U.S. So, you know, once I realized that recurrence was just as high in the U.S. while I was at Hopkins and it was the nature of the disease, I really felt that 
research had to be done if we were finally going to make a difference in our patients' lives. And back then, uh, that was in 1988, 89, India just didn't have uh, the same resources to do research. And so I decided, you know, I'm going to stay on in the U.S. and do my residency here. And so applied. And once again, you know, I really owe a lot of what I've done in life, uh, thanks to the Hopkins faculty, because they just motivated me. They were amazing, hardworking people. But the chair of uh, the department then became Dean of Johns Hopkins. I met with him because ENT, as both of you, Ashley and Gopi, you know how tough it is to yeah. uh, match into and being a foreign medical graduate, they typically didn't look at FMG applications. But the chair at Hopkins felt you know, that I did stand a chance and asked me to do a year of general surgery, mm -hmm. which I first did in Michigan and then applied uh, for ENT. So I had recommendations about, you know, my clinical skills as well. Right. And uh, then applied for ENT after that year of general surgery at Michigan and landed up matching in San Diego at UCSD. So that's how I landed up there. <laughs> <laughs> Long story. <Wow. laughs> it's an amazing story. So then tell us about your the transition from residency to to fellowship. Did, did you did you do a fellowship and then what happened after that? Yeah, so I, you know, I stayed on at San Diego Tom Robbins who you may have heard of because he was the president of the American Head Neck Society as well as all the staging books that we have through the academy are written by him. So he was the director of Head and Neck, and I stayed on in San Diego. So uh, by then, I was married uh, to Raghu, who was also doing his fellowship in pulmonary. He transferred after we got married from the Mayo Clinic, where he did critical care to do his pulmonary. And so we, you know, both... Um, finished at the same time. And so I decided might as well stay at UCSD. It was a great program as well and wonderful city. Mm -hmm. So I ended up seeing my fellowship <laughs> there. But, uh, and yeah. then how did you come to Shreveport? What, what drew you? Were they looking to build a program there? How did you, you know, how was that on the map? Yeah, no, it was a very selfish reason. I needed my uh, student visa converted to a green card. <laughs> <laughs> so I came here on a J-1 visa yeah. and the J-1 visa requires you to either go back to your home country or work for a VA or an underserved area. And interestingly, Raghu came on a J-1 too. So I didn't come here married. We came here independently. So each of us had to get this J-1 conversion. Wow. And in my fellowship year, we... I was pregnant with our first boy, Sean, and I, we decided, you know, we had already stayed apart for long enough that we yeah. weren't going to stay apart. And so basically, this was the place that was able to sponsor both Raghu and myself. And it was really going to be for a year. And then we were going to go back to San Diego where they were holding Raghu's position, yeah. the director of transplant but we landed up loving Shreveport, and uh, here I am, I guess, our host, <laughs> 25 years later, 20 years later. So, yeah. 
I mean, it's almost serendipitous because I feel for the amount that you've given to the Shreveport community, to the Department of Laryngology, to the Cancer Center, to LSU, I mean, it's it's beyond a match made in heaven for the amount of growth that you've brought to the program and for the city. Thank you. I've loved that. I really, I mean, it's so easy to be a part of this wonderful community and there's something to building, you know, I think. Yeah. That's been one of my, one of the things I've struggled with when you get uh, opportunities to go, you know, to big name places and look at chair positions and I've had to turn them down. But I've always thought, is it better to be, you know, a small fish in a big pond or <laughs> I think it's fun building something here. It's a lot of satisfaction. Yeah. Actually, you know, I think the, I was talking to Aaron, my husband, about that yesterday where just thinking about, you know, how with COVID, your pond is a lot smaller now, no matter where you live because yeah. of social distancing and whatnot. And honestly, I feel like I'm living my best Jomo life, the best joy of missing out life possible because everything is so purposeful now. It has to be. There's no, nothing extra just because of the social distancing. And so the, the I think the fi big fish in a small pond model does allow for a lot of building and growth. So can you tell us a little bit more about sort of, the, you know, how you know in terms of, or if there's a gut feeling, an instinct in terms of opportunities or decision-making, because those are major decisions of whether, you know, whether it's different job opportunities or options or, you know, what you quote stick out or not stick out. How does that, how, do, how does it all come together for you? Yeah, I think it's, you know, something you constantly struggle with. I mean, one of the things Raghu, my husband and myself said earlier on in our career is that if either of us are unhappy, then we should move. But if things are going well, um, you want to be in a place where you can balance your professional life and family life. And especially, you know, like for you, it's uh, to physician uh, family, that is a, a really hard thing to juggle when you have kids right. and be there for them. And so uh, to me, it always felt like I've got to think of like if I move to be chaired a bigger name place, that means Raghu starting, you know, because he's in private practice. So he would be starting at the bottom of, you know, a private practice with call. And it was just different. And I think having kids really changes the perspective. I mean, as a resident in San Diego, I realized, hey, did I ever get to the beach? Do any of the fun stuff, you're so busy and with kids, you know, you're just running back and forth after work. You're just going to their music, music lessons and their games. And right. it's really sometimes nicer to be in a small uh, yeah. town. Yeah. And I've actually, that's one of the ways I've recruited people here. You know, people always ask me, how have you been so fortunate with recruiting people from all over? And I think I've stressed that to the younger faculty, that there is, you know, a definite benefit to not having to fight traffic. Yeah. You know, having grown up over here, I mean, between Raghu and me, we've really not missed out on any of our kids' activities. Like, there's something to be said about slow OR turnaround times. <laughs> I have, even between OR cases, just run to like South Islands, which yeah. is just five minutes away. Never stayed for the full event, but just like gone and waved so that yeah. my kids saw me 
little did they know that I was gone after that big wave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, there's advantages. And then also, like I said, job satisfaction. When I came here, you know, this was a great department, but head and neck was not built. Dr. Stucker, who's a giant in facial plastics, had a really strong facial plastics program, but head and neck was not. And, you know, research definitely was not forte here. And so I think it was really fun, you know, starting from scratch. I mean, I came here not asking for any package because I thought we were going back to San Diego in a year after getting our green cards. And so I didn't negotiate for anything because I just came here with the sole goal of getting my green card and then applying. Right. Uh, so, you know, I've had to build everything, including like starting my lab, just from small grants, from the academy, from here, the cancer center, and then slowly build. And it's just been fantastic, you know, and fun doing that. So. I think people have to look at all these various aspects. The grass always seems greener. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think uh, every place has its uh, challenges and, you know, positives. And you've just got to see what's right for you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's not all about career. Yeah. Gopi and I talk about this a lot about, you know, job satisfaction and trying to find that sweet spot where you're busy, you know, in a way of that you're, you know, happy with what you're building or what you're, what you're doing and, you know, you're productive, but where you're also able to comfortably say no to things that are going to over stretch you. What are your thoughts on, you know, how you can say no without feeling guilty <laughs> and, and, you know, in a, in an academic center, I feel like there's, um, you get these kind of, you know, gold stars for citizenship and for doing, you know, being on committees and doing things where you're not actually getting, you know, it's not a part of your job responsibilities, but it's kind of extra stuff. And, and it can, it's easy to look up one day and just have a lot of work to do that is in addition to your actual job that you're getting paid to do, or you're you're not enjoying as much anymore. Yeah, I think you're asking the wrong person. Because, <laughs> you know, I think that's one of my weaknesses. But when I've looked back, I've always found I've benefited from it. So I have never said no. Uh, I think the first time I said no to something was last year. And my office staff actually heard me say no and they stood up and all got into came to my office and clapped. And said, what are you all clapping for? And he said we for the first time we've heard you say no to somebody who's asked you to meet with them or do something and I started laughing. But I think you're right. That is uh, hard to you know navigate but I somehow have felt every time I've wanted to say no but just couldn't say that say no and um done it when I look back I personally have benefited from like even a meeting you know like uh, some of the departments since uh, there's not many clinical people here with NIH funding and so I get asked a lot to even interview faculty candidates for like biochemistry and molecular biology and I'm like oh god I, you know there's just no time in my day but then I meet with them and then I find hey, they are on study section or they are doing work similar to what I have been doing. And then you land up collaborating with them and it makes your research stronger. But I, you're, you're right. I think 
you've got to decide what's important. And if it ever gets to a point where like you're overwhelmed, you know it, you know, and you just got to say no, because the worst thing you, I mean, the last thing you want to do is commit and then not meet the deadlines and, you know, not do a good job because then that's even worse. But I don't know. I feel people notice when you say no. I'll give you an example. I was pushing for one of our faculty to be on some committee once, you know, was a stellar faculty. Hmm. And the person I talked to said, you know what, I don't think that faculty of yours has time because they recently said no to reviewing a manuscript for the for a journal. And I was like, wow, like people notice that. I mean, yeah. you know, and then, so I think there is an advantage to saying yes, if you can. But again, I, I, I really... <laughs> had very long busy days because of this habit. I mean, I I would wake up at four in the morning and, you know, I'm here till late, but not when I had my kids were young. I always made it a point to go back by, you know, six or so. But yeah, I I think I was lucky I could sleep less. I didn't need as much sleep. Yeah. But I don't have a great answer for that. So... I wanted to ask you, did you early on, I feel like we get so caught up in building a busy clinical practice that it can get difficult in terms of incorporating research. But you knew early on research was important. You had the Hopkins year at research. How does one start to do that? I mean, did you have a research mentor? How did you have a such a intentional, how did you make an intentional effort or did you make it or did it just come naturally in terms no, of No, no, I that? definitely made an intentional um, effort. So, you know, like I said, I mean, I came to this country because I've the recurrence rates. And so it's always been my passion to like end my career with making a difference (laughs) in the outcomes of our cancer patients. And Mm. so after Hopkins, even at in San Diego, I did research. And even though uh, it wasn't in cancer, it helped me learn a lot of the molecular biology techniques. So I was very determined to continue on this track. And I was very fortunate. I took two courses at the start of my career. One was the American College of Surgeons for junior faculty. Mm. And I thought that was a really great conference because they said you make your mark in your first five years of your career. In those five years, you, you have to know what you want to be known for. The other thing they mentioned was how in the research track, when you apply for your NIH grants, you know, you never get it right away. And your critique is so harsh that they said 75% of clinicians give up and never apply, reapply for the grant because it's so easy for us to just immediately bounce back into the clinical world, right? Yeah. Because we know we'll always have patients and we can always fill up our time. Right. And so I think that made a big impact on me. And I was uh, quite determined to have, you know, do some research in cancer. So when I came here, I started looking around because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Yeah, And I I did know that I was very frustrated as a head neck cancer surgeon that a lot of our recurrences were local after spending such long hours resecting and the pathologist said our margins were negative. 
you know, yeah. our recurrence at the local site. So I had always felt maybe at the molecular level, we're still leaving cells behind destined to become cancer. <laughs> and so I started talking to the molecular biologists here at LSU and Dr. De Benedetti mm-hmm. was a molecular biologist I met with. And he's like, he said, hey, I, you know, just overexpress this translation protein translation initiation factor, Mm -hmm. EIFOE, in normal cells, and they became cancer. And he said, would you want to look at that? And I said, wow, I've never heard of it. (laughs) But uh, at that time, Hopkins had started looking at P53 mutations in Mm -hmm. surgical margins. And then people were looking at CMYC. So I said, if I just work on P53, CMYC, you know, the RAS mutations, I'll be one of many and in a small place that doesn't have any infrastructures yet. So I thought, let me look at EIFOE. And I was very fortunate. I started my career at the VA because they gave me, were able to sponsor me for my green card. Mm -hmm. And one of the very first patients I operated on, a laryngectomy patient, I sent the tumor to Dr. De Benedetti's lab. And then I said, hey, I think we're leaving cancer behind in these surgical margins, even though the pathologist calls it negative. So can you check the margins on a few patients I send you? Wow. And when his lab ran the Western blot, the surgical margin, one of the inferior, the tracheal margin was like mm. really strong, even stronger than the tumor. Mm. And I kept saying to the lab, have you mixed the samples? And they were like, no, no, we were very careful. And three months later, that patient recurred right at the store. Wow. Yeah. And so I was, wow, this is crazy. And so then started sending him in that first year, tumors and margins. And we had our first paper in a pretty high impact cancer journal called Oncogene. Because patients who overexpressed FOE in the margins were recurring. And those that didn't, didn't trigger. So I, you know, then applied for my first grant and I wrote to the Hopkins group. They were looking at P53 mutations and I said, let's compare it. And that's how I got my first grant. And in that prospective trial, we were able to show that, you know, FOE patients were recurring when FOE was expressed in the margins. Wow. And, uh, my research mentor, you know, continued to be the Benedetti. I, he was full of ideas, this brilliant, brilliant guy. And so I said, now we have a marker that's going to cause, predict who recurs, but what do we do for these patients? We can't stain during surgery that stain, I mean, histochemistry takes four hours. And, you know, around that time, gene therapy had just got a bad reputation because of the UPEN. Yeah. Uh, young kid that died and I had started working in the Bened- with the Benedetti with using gene therapy to knock out FOE. So I said, forget that. And then he said to me, have you heard about the mTOR inhibitors? Because they are upstream of FOE and when mTOR is activated, they increase FOE. Maybe you can try that. Hmm. So I uh, wrote to Wyatt and I said, told them about my results. I went up to Boston, met with them. And did their first clinical trial. And now recently, I ran a multi-institutional trial with Novaris and through my NIH grant. And the results are looking really promising. So I'm hoping by the end of my career, you know, I persisted with the same topic. Um, Wow. And 
just kind of, you know, collaborated with a lot of other institutions to make this happen. Yeah. So I've made a concerted effort and in trying to, you know, get the research constantly moving ahead. I never got my R01 at my first attempt. Never. Mm-hmm. I'm always on my last attempt. But I wow. heard that, you know, talk I heard at the start of my career. Wow. So that, I mean, what I love is all the, you know, the openness, I guess, to saying yes, because it seems to lead to a lot of connections, relations and growth. I mean, that's what, you know, the relationship with the pe- the microbiologist, that's pretty, that's amazing. Yeah, no, no. I think um, networking is so important in academics. You know, I, I, I've really regretted COVID, obviously, for many other reasons. But I think, you know, all of us sitting at our office computers on webinars is just mm-hmm. not the same. It's all about connections in what you do, I yeah. think. Yeah, that was actually something I had written down that I wanted to ask you about is, you know, h- how do we network now in COVID? And it's obvious that that networking and collaboration has been a big part of, you know, shaping your your career and things that you've done. And when I think about the different committees that I'm on and the different things that I'm doing across the university, it's very different now because we're I'm not going into a meeting where I can have these side conversations and meet people from different departments. And, you know, now we're just kind of logging in to a Zoom meeting. We're not seeing each other's faces. There's no side conversations. So what what can we do to network now? Yeah, I mean, I think other than speaking up, you know, on these webinars and maybe in the chat and (laughs) asking Mm -hmm. questions or reaching out and just calling people, you know, after the meeting, it is hard because, I mean, you don't get the vibe, you don't know, you know, body language is so important in terms of who you want to approach. You know, I've always said when there's like this big divide now, right, between hospitals and med schools, because the hospitals just want you to generate work RVUs and they don't put enough of emphasis any longer on teaching and mm-hmm. research and but they even want to cut down in a lot of places travel but i keep saying i would to our institution i would not have got my r01 grants and they love r01 grant funded people because institutions get 45% of indirect costs of your grant so they make a lot of money Uh, But I said, you know, every time they say something about cutting back on travel, I said, you don't realize, especially at smaller places, you don't, if you don't travel and go out and meet people, like I would literally, you know, even at the ACR meeting, look through the brochure on who was talking on topics related to my research. At the end of the meeting, I'd go up and meet with them, even though I never knew them talk to them about my results. And I was always blown away by how incredibly helpful people are in tea and cancer research. They'd give me their email and say, hey, anytime you want to collaborate, let us know. But I think that helped because unless they see you and see your passion and, you know, that you're committed to this and see your results, it's very different, like, from what we do now. I mean, how many of us are signed on to these webinars and really not paying attention? 
and we're answering emails or going about our family business if you're doing it from home. You know, it's right. just not the same. I think we're losing out on that right now. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I feel like I have to keep my video on if I'm going to pay attention, <laughs> you know, because it's a check. If my video is off, then mm-hmm. right, do another stuff and I missed it. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So tell me, I want to know more about being the chairman, the chairwoman in otolaryngology. How do you, what is, what does that mean to be a chairwoman? Like what, you know, I know there's, you have to think about the department and the budget and the practice, but tell me what your experience has been. Yeah, it's definitely been a lot of, you know, learning through this process. I realized really early on in my career as a resident, though, that if one has a strong work ethic, integrity, one could never lose. And let me explain that statement. I started my residency in a program where I was going to be the first woman resident surgeon to graduate. So UCSD had not had a woman prior to me uh, coming into that program. And so the first day on the service, the chief resident said, what are you doing in this program? This is like an all-male Jewish program. So now, you know, not only was I a woman, but an Indian woman who'd not grown up in the U.S. And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to work hard and never complain. And, you know, it seemed always going well. A couple of months later, the same chief resident was walking back from lunch with our team uh, this is at the VA and there was a puddle of water on the ground and before I knew it this strapping man had picked me up and held me above his head saying I cannot let my Indian princess walk through this <laughs> puddle of water <laughs> in front of all the other residents so I kind of knew right then you know hey there's something special to being a woman surgeon and even your harshest critics can be won over if one carries one share of responsibility, I think, with dedication and fortitude. And I think that was a good learning lesson. Another lesson um, that I learned in Michigan during my general surgery, because in those days, there weren't really many women in surgery. Mm -hmm. And so there were a couple of one woman surgeon. And, um, you know, many times in those days, you kind of had to act like a guy to get your self heard but I guess I was a little you know timid just come from India didn't know the system and one of the faculty said to me before I left just remember to be heard you don't have to be like one of us one of the beautiful things is maintaining you know that womanly I guess feminine qualities and so I kind of never I decided you know it's all about just proving yourself so I think even to be heard here. Uh, so again, I'm the only woman chair right now in at LSU. So it's, I'm always at these meetings yeah. with all the rest being men. But I think once you prove yourself and if you start asking for things right off the bat, people don't, you know, give you what you want. But once they know that you will really grow something and they can count on you and you're not asking for something just to ask and it's worth it. I think they, people open up doors for you. So I won't say it's not been difficult. There's definitely been challenges. Um, you know, when I uh, first started in the department as chair, Dr. Stucker, who was the chair prior to me, had been chair here for almost 25 or 30 years. Wow. So that was not easy because he stayed on on faculty. Yeah. 
And so it was hard to sit in his chair when he recruited you at home years ago. But he always said to me, never have more than three enemies at one time. <laughs> I think that was great advice because there were people I had to be tough with. And, you know, yeah. you have to make difficult decisions. Unfortunately, once you're in administration, yeah. you do finally have enemies. Right. But you just got to know you're doing the right thing for the right reasons. And it's not for selfish reasons. And, you know, I think things finally work out. And then I think it's difficult balancing for women, you know, family and managing administration and your clinical workload. And so you, I think, may have asked me earlier, you know, in terms of how do you know when it's time to move, to rise, when to accept other, you know, positions. I think the advice I've given my junior faculty at the start of their career, when they're not that busy clinically, they come into my office and they go, oh, our practice is not growing as fast. And I keep telling them about that first five years of your career is so important. Use that time to publish, to write, to do. It doesn't have to be bench research, clinical research, whether it could be teaching, it could be anything. Patients will always come. You will always build. So, you know, and I think some of them took me to heart. And then when they got busy, you can't turn back, you know. Right. You start saying no, people will stop referring to you. So I think it's important, you know, to use that time. But also in terms of challenges I think as a woman in terms of you know when do you accept a chair position so I had the opportunity 10 years before I became chair here I had started getting asked because as soon as you get your R01 grants you become a lot more marketable and you know I decided there's a time and place for everything you don't want to be stuck with administrative load when your kids are little because once your chair or any of those positions, you're here late at nights because there's meetings and you're always recruiting and dinners. That's just not, you know, great when you have kids. Yeah. Um, and also one of the chairs who became a chair, I think when he was like 35 or 38, said to me, I'm so bored because there's only so much you can do for your department over, you know, 10, 15 years. Wow. And and people get bored. So I think it's important to remember there's a time and place. I think at SUO, I once heard Jack Gluckman, who was chair at a Cleveland Clinic or Case Western, I can't remember. But he said, think about your life in as academic life as 30 years. The first 10 years, you're building, you know, your career and what you want to be known for. And then the next 10 years, you know, nationally and known and then the last 10 years internationally and giving back and so those have all been things I've taken to heart well you're obviously to me you just seem like a, a natural born leader you just kind of you know listening to all the things that you've done in your life would you say that leaders are born or made hmm. <laughs> and, and as we, you know, and as we are, you know, trying to kind of instill leadership qualities in our residents, what what kinds of things do you think that you've, you know, done in your life that have helped you acquire those skills that you use as a leader? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think it's 
both, right? I think we're all hardwired and our personalities is, are different, even amongst your own kids, the same family, the same parents, you see such different personalities. Yes. I mean, so I think, you know, if someone's really not outgoing, you know, just very shy and quiet and not very social, I think it would be a little hard. But I think a lot of leadership skills can also be learned. But you do have to have that basic people to people skills, you know, that you want to meet. I'm um, big about like, I don't want people to set up formal meetings. I just walk into our faculty's offices. I have an open door policy. I think so much um, is getting to know your faculty well and their families. And, you know, and I think all that is part of who you are. But that definitely doesn't mean why it cannot be nurtured. And, you know, there are a lot of things you can learn along the way. I feel like I've learned more from experience, though, rather than courses. I have taken some leadership courses. I was uh, told by a lot of ENT chairs to take the Harvard chair course when I became chair. And I definitely, you know, thought I benefited more from financial. Yeah. But the leadership part of the talk was was fun and good. But I don't know, every experience is so different. I feel like learn more on the job. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I wanted to ask you, how is it, how is being a woman leader or a woman surgeon changed in the last, you know, 10 years or last 20 years? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think uh, we have made so many strides in the positive direction Uh, and we still have a long ways, I think, to go. You know, like I mentioned, I was like the first woman resident to graduate. I mean, who would have thought that? You know, it was only 20 years ago in India where I came from. We were more women residents back then. But also, you know, they would ask you back then, are you going to have kids when you're um, a resident? And all those things you could get away with. Now that has changed. And, you know, I'm glad they're giving women more time off for, you know, pregnancy and after you have, you know, FEMLA and mm-hmm. things unheard of back then. But in terms of leadership, I mean, look at how much stride we've made. I was so thrilled to see Sujana Chandrasekhar and Gail Woodson pass on the baton to each other. At the academy, we have Galen Garrett, the first trio woman president, Carol Bradford, both first HNS president and now the academy president. So we've, I think, come a long ways, but I think we've got so much to do still. We've got to have a critical mass because, you know, what I realized is it's more about thinking about the person at the right time. I think, I don't think, and I could be wrong, okay, but I don't think the men intentionally want to leave out the women. But like now, as president, right, of the HNS, I'm always being asked, oh, this position is coming, becoming vacant. Who do you want to recommend? And you think of your friends, right? right. Our friends are more the women. I mean, we, we've obviously got male friends, but a lot of our women colleagues are close friends. And so whoever you've spoken to recently or you 
right. communicate regularly is who comes to your mind at that time. And you're not doing it intentionally, but that's how it is. So I think once the more we critical mass of women we get in leadership positions, I think we'll be we'll get there. But we, I think people have to make that conscious effort. And I'm so glad to see so many all our societies going out of the way to make that happen, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's almost a must, I think, now, at least in that initial pool of applicants for chair positions, they always want to see women applicants. And you've got to make that conscious effort because if you don't get that first step, it's never going to happen. Right. And you've mentioned the word balance a lot in terms of being a woman and having a family and, you know, having your practice. And I, two questions. One, do you feel like being an ENT was a better fit for being because you're a woman? And two, do you believe in balance? Is there a such thing? Yeah, I, you know, I think ENT is just as hard as general surgery, especially for the head and neck cancer. I mean, both of you know from residency how long right. those resections, neck resections, right. and then those free flaps take, yeah. and how often you're going back. And, right. you know, so I don't think it's any easier. But uh, I mean, you know, I think balance is important. And, you know, I think in terms of whether ENT would be a benefit for a woman, for most of the subspecialties, Probably yes. I think head and neck cancer, probably no. You're here for long hours and repeat a lot of what you do to those skull-based cases and beads. I know you probably spend long hours in surgery. But I mean, you've got to be, if you love what you do, I think the hours don't matter. And you just got to find the right caregiver for your family. You know, we, we've all got to have that babysitter that is your other yes. uh, spouse <laughs> yeah that is there to take your kids and drive them around and uh, you know be there to do all those other uh, things we don't get the luxury of doing so I think it's important as a woman a uh, surgeon to have your caregiver do a lot of the groceries housing so when we have time with the family it's quality time yeah. and that's also something I think that's important but again, if you love what you do and everything's a joy, I think. So I'm thrilled about, I would never change, you know, what I've chosen for anything. People keep talking about how medicine has changed, but I know I'd do it all over again. <laughs> Sherian, you're an inspiration and your story is just so beautiful and exciting and really just makes me want to do more. So thank you so much for sharing so openly with us about your life um, and giving us your time. And you've always given me your time anytime I've come to you for mentorship advice. So I appreciate it so much. Now, this was fun to do and more fun because it's you, Gopi, and Anne. <laughs> I'm sure Gopi has asked you to co-host the show. You are equally dynamic and fun to be Aww. with. So <laughs> thank you both for inviting me. All right. Thank you. Um, Sherian, if people want to find you, do you have like any social media type stuff or should they just find you on the LSU website? How can they get to know more about you? Feel free to share. Are you talking about mostly physicians, ENTs? Yeah, medical students, residents, physicians. Yeah, anybody, I, I, I guess, mean, who are listeners on the show. 
I would feel feel free to share my email uh, with them. Or I can give you Amy's email and she can forward it. But if it's really med students, and I'm happy to uh, okay. reply on email. I'm not good at social media. Yeah. I hit the wrong button. I did like once on Facebook and I don't know, got hacked and I will, I, I, I'm never going to do, do that again. <laughs> that sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> I don't know if it's a nightmare. I'm just incompetent on social media. <laughs> no. You're not missing anything. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. It was great. We loved it. Love what you do. That's that's the take home message, right? Lo- love yeah. what you do, and and that's that's all you need. That'll take you places. Yeah. 